Kim, I don't know if you've listened to the latest episodes, but we've it seems like in the past like five episodes we've been complaining a lot about Skype. Um, and so this is legit. Uh, this is legit not going to be in the show because <laughs> like, I, like, right. I feel like it's too much. I always lie about that, you know, but this is legit not going to be in the show. So let's take a breather and we'll start over, especially since okay. you sound a lot better. We'll just pretend like we got you on the line. This is just, you okay. know, so, you know, oh, oh, hi, Kim. <laughs> oh, my God. Hi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hi, guys. <laughs> so this is, yeah, we just picked up. Uh, yeah. So. It, we're just starting now. This is just this is the beginning. And we have Kim Kravik back with us. It's so good to hear uh, from Kim because I was listening to, to one of the things I did just to, uh, in my anticipation of today. I listened to a little bit of our, our last conversation with Kim, which was all the way back in episode 17. 17. Oh, it's almost five wow. years ago. Do they even make those anymore? <laughs> they they do not. <laughs> Episode seventeen. Well, thank you not... for having me back. Yeah, well, it's good it's, to be back with you guys. It's been way too long. Well, I, I think I'm pretty sure in that episode we said we can't wait to have another episode with Kim, and then we proceeded to wait about four years. Which means this is going to be a fifty year <laughs> program because to have her back an adequate number of times, given that it takes five years in between. Yeah. I'm sorry, but we're doing this when I'm a hundred. Like that's that's oh, how this is cashing out. Oh boy. That's a that's really optimistic. And if you think Health Corner is big now, folks, <laughs> wait till I'm in my nineties. <laughs> one one other like uh, one other kind of hats off to Kim. Kim was an early champion of our little show. Indeed, like you 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 know blogged about it even when you weren't on the program and said nice things. So you know it's this is like you know as a scholar, I mean, and you've, the inno- innovations in your own scholarship kind of speak for themselves, Kim. But like we all try in this job to oh, figure out you. like what's the public good, like how can we help out, like what what can we do? And this yeah. is like one of the things in my career that it kind of started just to see where it went, and and we're just kind of yeah. plugging along. I don't know how long it's going to go, but it's like um, people seem to enjoy it, and and we learn a hell of a lot. So you know. We kind of keep going, but it really... And you guys were early movers. You were early movers in the podcast space, I think. You know, there are a lot more of these legal podcasts now, but you were, uh, you embraced the the change early, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, we were, I think, 2013, the end. And I have to say, when we started it, it felt late. I felt like, you know, we'd been talking about it for several years when it, at the point, somewhere around 2010, Uh it seemed like obvious that like podcasts were going to be... A big thing. I wrote a blog post about it yeah. one time because it was just you know. that was clear to you much earlier than to me, certainly. Uh, right. Because once it you didn't had... feel late to me, it didn't feel anything. I just didn't know enough about well, it. I'm not saying it felt late. I mean, what what does late mean in all this? Right. You start one today, and it can be you know Brian Fry just started a podcast. It's great. You know, it's like it's right, not and he late. already has 500 episodes. <laughs> not that I'm irritated. <laughs> it's amazing. Brian does an episode every day. It seems like oh, more than one, more than one. Not that I'm counting. Oh, really? <laughs> oh no, he doesn't know. He's, uh, no, it's an it's an amazing amount of productivity for them. And I, I I just could not do it because each of these episodes takes me all told. If I'm honest with myself about how much time it takes me about a day in terms of like reading, talking, yeah. doing the editing, pushing it out, doing the show notes, um, and I just yeah. don't have time for maybe one more than once a week. And even that is like it's a significant investment of of kind of like what we were just talking about, like these one of these projects that you do to try to advance the public interest given your job and given our jobs in the way that I can. So, um, but but I was just going to say, yeah, that it was just gratifying that you early on said, Hey, you guys are doing a good thing and gave us a shout out. That was, you know, as much as like, we shouldn't need like external reinforcement. It was like nice to have a little bit. Yeah. Well, and people need to know you're there. Yeah. It does help to get the word out for sure. And cause there are people who might enjoy it who might not know about it yet. And, um, 
No, happily, forever is a long time. So when these things are available <laughs> and, and when you learn about it in 2019, you can listen to a show from 2014 or 2015. When I was, I gotta say, I don't know what it's, what's doing it. And Christian, I, 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 I put none of the responsibility for this on you. Oh boy. I'm definitely getting dumber. <laughs> uh, and because I just listened to myself in 2014, I was like, damn, that guy sounds pretty smart. And now I sound like an idiot. Um, but so I don't know what that's about. But I also know that uh, it, it's true that Christian invests an enormous amount of time and energy into this. I have by far the easier of the tasks of the two of us. Uh, and, and that makes me Probably doubly not, grateful that not so. uh, the, the last few years, when I think about all the conversations we've had with folks and how interesting they've been and how much they've affected my thinking. It's just like if you if you took all this stuff in, in the last several years and just pulled it out of my being, you know, what a gray goo veil of tears that would be. It would just be like <laughs> there's no joy there at all. It would be a different different you'd do different things it would be a different stream like like it was saying earlier like so much of academics is kind of you know scratching at ideas seeing where they go sometimes they go amazing places like this global kidney exchange idea, yeah. right and, and sometimes they kind of scatter a little bit and some you know pick up steam in ways that you don't know and sometimes it seems like nothing works but maybe in the future people will find some value in it and right you know part of the idea of kind of public funding or, or uh, um, kind of collective funding of academic research is like a lot of it is like not going to pay off in ways which are even sensitive, uh, sensible, right? I mean, meaning that you, you can't sense the ways in which they paid off. But like, you know, the fact that I talk to you and you talk to somebody else, you know, no one's ideas are quite the same as they would be if he pulled any one of us out of this whole, True. you know, mosaic. So, All right. So, Kim, more kidneys, more better. Is that the <laughs> more um, again, kidneys, more better? Yeah. Is that is that the gist? <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's the gist. That's the short version. I should have used that title instead. That's a lot better. <laughs> um, the the uh, the idea, like, there's so much going on in this paper. So part of it is about uh, in the taboo trades context, the 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 very notion of taboo itself. Like the yeah. the, the word being used here, it seems, is repugnance. Right. Um, I guess another word you could have uh, a person could use in this context is disgust. Right. Capturing this idea that um, there are some things that when they appear to be the subject of exchange uh, and, and perhaps even more so if they appear to be the subject of market exchange, it gives people the willies like their first reaction to it is a um, and figuring out what to do with the is part of a market design ethos, which I take it is what you're bringing to to this. So what is your. Although been, I have to say, also some of your some of your interlocutors, Kim, like part of their critique, um, as I read them, and I don't know that we're going to be able to post all of these papers. They're not all freely available yet. But um, right, uh, you, you know, you posted an article about this global kidney exchange. You got a, a couple of um, at least that I read people who wrote responses, and and one of the lines of response was that it doesn't, it may not do justice to the um, to, to the depth of or the meaning of repugnance here to say that it means the same thing as the, like Joe said, right? This kind of non-cognitive. Right. Oh, okay. But, uh, so I, I would distinguish repugnance. Christian, let Kim talk, uh, No, I will in just a second. Because <laughs> what, pl- what you were tacitly doing was suggesting that I was trying to diminish something, and I wasn't trying to do that at all, nor did she in the paper, nor did those other people. I'm saying that initial impulse, it could be the sign oh of God. something very deep and significant and important, or it could be the sign of something quite and, and churlish I'm, and childish. I'm just trying to you highlight that. You don't know until you start to dig into it and interrogate it. I gave the initial signal. <laughs> Kim, can you tell 
felt we've done too many shows when Joe accuses me of tacitly doing something. <laughs> okay, so we're going to shut up or we're going to let Kim like oh, clear okay. the air and solve all of our problems here, including these kind of interpersonal problems, which are coming to the fore in a very direct way right now. Well, that I don't, I don't know that I can help with that part. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, I can speak to repugnance and, and perhaps to disgust. And so I think it's wise to distinguish repugnance from disgust, something that I probably should have done in this paper. And as I was going back and, re, you know, you were saying that you, you know, going back and listening to your prior podcast, I could never listen, go back and listen to an old podcast. Just like I, I can't bear to go back and read my old articles because mm. I always think that I'm idiotic. Um, <laughs> and this one is only a few months old. Um, but, you know, so, so disgust, I think is narrower. And it's it tends to be used in a very sort of specific sense, which is an instinctive and physical reaction. And there's debate over within sort of, you know, so Martha Nussbaum, for example, uses the term disgust. But usually usually it implies some sort of physical, strong physical reaction and that might be evolutionary in nature or, or something like that. Whereas I think that we are using repugnance, and it's not a term I inv- I invented. It's it's you know Al Roth has really you know latched onto the term, and so it's become a common term within market design for that reason. It's a broad. It's broader. It's kind of a catch-all definition um, that includes disgust, but I th- but I think is not limited to disgust as it tends to be used um, in the literature. And as I think both of you touched on, it makes no normative judgment about the objection, right? Which I think is something that is unsatisfying to, as you can see from the responses to bioethicists and, and philosophers. But it's it 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 doesn't dismiss them as emotional. It just it takes them it takes it whatever the source is as a hard constraint. Um, and one that market designers have to to work around. That's sort of where I'm coming from with this concept of repugnance, which we can talk about in more detail. But I do think it's broader than the term discussed as most people who are sort of working uh, as other people use that phrase. And so, so it would be used as as a as you said, a catch all for at least moral ish uh, objections to market logic. I mean, in its broadest sense. Yeah. So the in the broadest sense, I think it would be uh, one could sort of define it as um, an aversion to exchange where there are where the externalities um, are either not present or are difficult to identify. That would include some of the list that, for example, Glenn has in his accompanying article. It's Glenn Cohen. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's just ground it a little bit because you're you're writing about a system that that you're pioneering as far as I understand it, this global kidney exchange, right? Which is an extension of ideas that I think we talked about the last time you were on the show. Yeah. I'm part of a small cog in the, in the wheel, but yes, but, but so I'm part of a group of that has been doing it. Yeah. I mean, Kim, wheels need cogs. (laughs) (laughs) They don't, they don't turn without, without the cogs. Um, And and I understand that you're a critical cog in, in this particular wheel, if, if, if you can call yourself a cog at all. But um, the, but the idea behind the global um, kidney exchange it, it kind of extends these works on what what are the words for these um, so so you know in, in a lot of places where where you know kidney transplants are allowed which I think is just about everywhere now right like if you want to donate a kidney to a relative a loved one a close loved one 
Like that has been accepted under this by many, many cultures. Yeah. Um, although, as you point out in the article, that you know there was initially a revulsion to the idea of taking one part of your body and, and, and you know and implanting it in the in, in, into the body of another, right? So this right. there even had to be some overcoming of that, and and you describe it as a, a as a process of narrative building around donation and right. um, uh, a kind of a donative intent and a, an act of what, what's the word for this? An act altruism. Altru- well, no, I was thinking another one, but that yes, exactly, um, essentially. An extension of that would be so. So suppose I I do want to make such a gift to a loved one, but our kidneys, my kidneys, incompatible. Um, there may be another couple who's in the same situation, another pair, right? And maybe we could donate to each other. Like I could donate to to that person's uh, loved one, and 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 that the other person could donate to my loved one, and we kind of all donate at the same time, and it accomplishes all of our like you know altruistic objectives, but through a swap. There is an exchange which actually occurs. And right. that's what introduces the... So, Kim, what is that... Ve- just by going to that uh, four-point exchange, four people, two pairs crossing, mm-hmm. w- what does that introduce by way of it, the notion of exchange that, co- that might trouble a person... Um, or, or that might not, but that it, but that makes it very different from the pair where one person donates to this close loved one, and that's all that occurs. Right. So, I, I mean, I think it focused on whether or not it was altruism of the type that was initially envisioned, right? I mean, and, you know, my colleague, uh, my colleague and co-author, Kieran Healy, in his book, Last Best Gifts, actually talks about this history of making organ donation sort of acceptable um, and using this gift narrative, right? I mean, consciously using this gift narrative in order to sort of overcome the moral ob- ob- objections or at least answer them with a with a, an answer about a moral good, right? Um, which is this, this gift and altruism and helping others. So on the one hand, this is an altruistic exchange in the sense that, you know, you're not attempting to profit from the exchange. But the altruism is directed the, the per the altruism is not directed at the person you're exchanging with, right? Um, in other words, I am acting let's use the term altruistically for a minute, although we could pick apart that of as course, well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. yeah, that's you know, that's a sort of contested term itself, but let's just use it for now. But my altruism, such as it is, is directed at my loved one. It is not directed at the person that I am donating to. Right. That is a bargain for exchange. In other words, I'm saying I will trade you a kidney for a kidney. Um, The reason I'm doing it is is altruism. Right. Or or love or whatever it is. It's to help. It's to help my loved one. And so that is what troubled people initially. I mean, that was the initial objection is both that it was um, it was a barter system and therefore a market like exchange. and that it wasn't altruistic in the sense that, you know, kidney donation had an initially been envisioned as being. So before we go to chains and then to the exchange, I, I just want to ask, yeah. have there been studies, qualitative or otherwise, that measure, cause, that, that try to measure the following? Because m- my intuition is that there is altruism. There, there is kind of an altruism surplus that occurs in the exchange setting. In other words, people probably feel better and feel more like donative. I don't know how you measure this exactly when there's like this four person happy circle going on than just one on one. Like I can imagine if I were donating a kidney, I might actually feel more generous if I knew that my donation basically enabled two people, one of whom I'm I'm close to and love and one of whom is a stranger. And 
and kind of this donation to a stranger makes you feel even so this maybe conflates like warm glow with true altruism and I don't want to get into all that but I'm just wondering if anyone has studied like how the subjective feelings and storytelling of people who are engaged in these exchanges because I'm not quite so sure that like in fact I'm I, I would be surprised if people felt like less altruistic in the exchange setting than they do in the one-on-one setting well so but we're going to talk about chains in a minute. Certainly in the case of chains, um, I, I anecdotal, anecdotal evidence supports what you're saying, right? That, that people, you know, so, you know, if your option is giving to giving to one person to help one person or giving to one person to start a chain that transplants 30 people, people feel much better about the transplanting of 30 people. And I'm not sure whether there have been studies suggesting that, but certainly, Interactions with donors suggest that, and transplant professionals certainly believe that, right? Right. Um, so then the question is, you know, do people feel more altruistic within an exchange? And I, you know, I don't know whether there's good evidence on that or studies on that. There, there may be. I mean, my my sort of instinct would be that it might. Dip, I certainly wouldn't expect them to feel any less altruistic, right? right? Uh, I think that it's possible. So I think the level of sort of warm glow that one gets may depend on the efforts of the specific transplant center um, and sort of, you know, how much they do to make you feel um, a part of a community that is helping each other. And I think those efforts vary from center to center. Um, And it's certainly something that... that varies a lot when we start talking about the longer chains that involve more people, right? Um, and whether or not you are sort of encouraging people to think of this as an isolated exchange or part of a of a community of ch- of exchanges. And so we've mentioned chains a couple times, uh, so we should just say what they are. Uh, it's a yep. really like interesting, like you know, a, a quick like innovation that seems to be produce a lot of good. And that is like you get one person who has a purely altruistic intent and is not a directed donor, as I guess the literature calls them, which means that they're right. just willing to give a kidney to a stranger. Right. And then the person to whom that kidney is implanted has a has a pair, has another person who who wants to donate. But but doesn't match with me. But doesn't match. Or, or they actually might, right? So so this is the chains which include matching pairs is an interesting wrinkle that you add in the in the article, right. I think, Kim, right? Like whether they're right. included or not. But the point is that that person has to then the paired person has to donate their kidney to another stranger, right? And so it kind of keeps going. Like, you know, for each pair, the, the person in need of a kidney receives a kidney and the person who is willing to donate a kidney donates it on up the chain to the next person. Right. And this continues, I guess, until the chain is broken or, or you would kind of run out of run out of matches. Um, but one critical part of this is that if you're a willing donor and you have uh, the other person in your pair is the one who needs a kidney, they will not receive a kidney until you donate, right? So it's kind of an enforcement mechanism within the chain, to uh, keep it going. That, that's right. And so it, uh, I mean, so the idea, um, one way to think of it is that you've got an extra kidney in the system, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, this, this, let's call them an altruist. We call them non-directed donors. As you said, somebody who's just willing to donate to a stranger. I mean, under the old regime, right, that person would just do- donate to the waiting list and it would go to whoever's at the top of the waiting list who's compatible, right? Transplanting one person. 
the idea here is that this person can sort of kick off a series of exchanges and it does a couple of things. I mean, one is that um, it, it sort of gets rid of this reciprocal compatibility problem, right? You can, you can generate better matches um, if you don't have to look for a, two, two pairs, right, where, um, where, as I've labeled them in the paper, um, A is compatible with D and C is compatible with B. In other words, the donors in each pair have to be compatible with the, with the recipients in other pairs, right? Right. Um, but in, it, it also gets rid of the simultaneity constraint. Um, and the way it does that is, as you said, it's just sort, it's this sort of pay it forward regime in which the non-directed donor would donate to the first recipient. Um, then that recipient's paired donor would donate to the next recipient. Then, then that donor's paired, uh, that recipient's paired donor would donate to the next recipient and so on and so on. And what that means is that um, each person is receiving before they are giving. It doesn't remove the possibility of reneging. Right. Um, but what it does is mean that if somebody does renege, there's no situation whether you where you have somebody who both didn't receive a kidney and gave one away, right? So that the pair is worse off um, than they would have been if they had ever, if they had, if they had never joined a chain. So the worst that reneging accomplishes is to, uh, is to terminate the chain. That's right. To terminate the chain. And if it were sufficiently widespread, right, I think undermine confidence in the system. Yeah. So it is a big deal, but it is not a big deal for any specific individual in the chain or any specific pair in the chain. And, and that's the goal. It is still a big deal. And as a result, it imposes constraints on the way in which chains are organized. Right. I mean, in theory, they can go on forever. Um, and in theory, there can be an unlimited amount of time between donations. But because both of those things increase the the danger of reneging, that's those things don't typically happen, right? So typically, the size is limited, the 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 um, time in between donations is limited, um, and so. But isn't it true too? Like the the chains are also like complicated to design because of uh, how you include like difficult to match people. Yes. Right. I mean, this is it's not. Uh, and, and so this is partly what leads to the the upside for high income countries for the global kidney exchange, which I want you to talk about in a second. Right. But like yep. y- you can't just just because you have someone who wants a kidney and uh, who needs a kidney and someone who wants to donate a kidney doesn't mean you can just insert them anywhere in the chain. Right. This the whole problem of matching is, is a is a big problem uh, for some like type O donors is one example you give, although I know blood type is not the only issue. That's um, right. Uh, or typo recipients, I should say. It's both an issue of blood type and uh, an issue of sensitivity. And and as you say, it's very complicated. And these are the types of algorithms that that you know people like Al Roth won the Al Roth won the Nobel Prize for for this algorithm. In addition to his other matching algorithms, right? This is just one of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's sort of market design at its finest, I guess one might say. So why don't you tell us about the Global Kidney Exchange, and then we can kind of go back to what the repugnance critique of markets in general is and then how they might apply. Yeah. So um, global kidney exchange is a quite recent in- innovation. As you gathered from the paper, it's it's sort of the, the latest iteration of innovations, modifications in kidney exchange. I, th- I think that um, eight uh, have been done at this point. 
Uh, and the idea behind Global Kidney Exchange is that, um, you know, it's just in some in some ways, it's no different than the the swaps and the chains that we just discussed. Right. Um, the difference is that it is global in nature and in particular seeks to match low income countries with high income countries. Although some some of the global kidney exchanges that have been done did, in fact, include other high income countries, which we can talk about. But I mean, the real the real goal um, is to um, I don't want to use the word exploit because that gets people's um, hackles up um, to (laughs) (laughs) to leverage. Right. To to use the, the relative advantages that that lower middle income countries and high income countries have. Um, low and middle income countries um, have many easy to match pairs who will never get transplanted. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, I mean, unless they're independently wealthy. Right. right. Um, but there are, you know, in, in uh, many, many lower middle income countries, there's no money for transplantations. There, for, there's only limited money for dialysis. Right. So that um, in countries in, in some of these countries in stage renal disease is really a death sentence. You're not going to stay alive very long once you've you've entered renal failure. High-income countries have the opposite um, problem. You know, even the United States, with our sort of questionable healthcare system, does in fact have universal coverage for our dialysis and transplantation, um, and we're not alone in that. Um, but what we what we what we also have are um, a larger, a disproportionate number of difficult to match pairs. Uh, in the kidney exchange pool. And that's for a variety of, of reasons, some simple and some complicated. Um, but the, the idea is that the kidney ex- this, this type of global kidney exchange um, helps both parties by um, identifying easy-to-match pairs uh, in lower-middle-income countries who, who will not have access to transplantation otherwise. You can include them in a chain or a swap um, it's been done all in chains so far. And, and by doing that, you can transplant these difficult to match, in our case, Americans, although it could be any high income country. Um, and transplantation is much cheaper than dialysis. I mean, that what it comes down to is is sort of leveraging the cost difference between transplantation and dialysis. Mm-hmm. Can, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Because this, this is an important fact predicate, I think, that um, transplantation as a procedure... Uh, including whatever the follow-up care is, um, is much cheaper than dialysis. Is that an artifact of the way that healthcare is financed in the United States? Oh, interesting. Um, I don't think so, because I think that this is true universally. At the same time, it's possible that the differential is greater in the United States um, than it is in other countries. I, I ask only because my my impression of the of of what would contribute to dialysis being a very high cost uh, uh, service mm-hmm. is is not uh, that its inputs are incredibly expensive physical materials, right? That it takes an enormous amount of extraction of some rare metal, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 membranes, uh, per, the permeability membranes, have been around for a long time. The machines have been around for a long time. Process is well understood and it's been well known for decades. Um, so what makes it what makes dialysis costly is that it is, I suppose, as an economist would st- uh, would say, is the price the <laughs> the price elasticity, right? That mm-hmm. uh, it, there aren't good substitutes for it. Yeah. And the alternative is death. 
Yeah. So people right. will part with an enormous amount of money to get it. Yeah. So there, there is that. I mean, dialysis is also both time consuming, right? I mean, that's it, and forever. If you're not going to, I mean, mm. it, forever in this, it, you know, forever in the sense that it's not a cure in the way that transplantation is at, is at least, you know, typically a 10 year cure or whatever. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, so you're going to have to get, and you're going to have to get dialysis usually with increasing frequency, the longer you're on it and the sicker you become, ah. and you are going to become sicker on dialysis. You're not going to get better. Okay. Um, and I, so right when I say costs, I have so far only been talking about the actual medical costs of the two procedures, mm. but bear in mind that there are huge social costs associated with dialysis as well, right? Which is that if you have to go in for dialysis for, you know, four hours a day, four times a week, it's hard to hold down a job. You probably don't feel well, especially as you've been on it longer and longer, mm -hmm. again, making it hard to hold down a job. And the idea, you know, Part of why we're willing to pay for transplantation, I think, part of the argument is that, you know, it gets people back into their their lives, their productive lives. And, you know, and so we we care we care about, you know, them feeling better and being healthier and living longer. But we also care about them being productive members of society, which someone on dialysis has a much harder time contributing both to society and to their household wealth. Right. Than somebody who has been transplanted does, who, you know, who typically goes back to, uh, you know, a, a normal life with some limitations, of course, um, and the kidney won't last forever. So we could address some of the cost differential um, by, uh, in the narrow sense of cost, we could address some of that cost differential uh, if we, for example, had, um, you know, a, the, the national setting of the price of dialysis that could be charged. If there were a legislatively imposed price cap, we could lower that differential. But the points you were just making are is that you're just, in a way, you're just sort of scratching the surface of the cost by doing that. That's right. Because of these enormous follow-on social costs. And, um, and so really on, on, on many understandings of the word cost in this conversation, there's going to be a pretty important cost differential that will always separate uh, transplantation on the one hand and dialysis on the other hand, which I think means that there is a reason to believe that this trying to get a chain to cross a high-income country and a low-income country is always going to offer you this this upside. That that's right, and and as as you point out, the exact amount of that upside might vary. But I think I think we would always it, at least under current conditions, right? Always consider it to have some upside. Cool. And so so the upshot is that the um, anti-commodification concerns are very powerful when they um, are addressed to. Um, transplantation tourism in, in, in poor countries, people who need kidneys going and just paying um, non-directed donors, although in this case, non-directed market participants for their kidneys, right? This is right. this raises all kinds of, of problems, some of which uh, you, can be explained analytically and some of which are quite emotional. Right. And this, so, so here the donors are, um, the donors in poor countries are being compensated but their compensation comes in the form of a um, uh, a transplant for a uh, uh, for their loved one for their pair. You know, so so the only people who can participate in the market are people who who need kidneys matched with someone who is willing to donate a kidney. Right. And what they um, but unlike the um, purely domestic market in the United States, 
um, it's not just a, a, an exchange of kidneys. Um, in addition, the people from a poorer country also receive compensation in the form of the cost of the transplantation. Well, so I think this depends on how we define compensation, right? I mean, it looks as uh, one way to look at it, right, is that is that yes, this this pair from sort of the Philippines or Mexico or wherever it is, is getting something extra because because they're getting something that their own system wouldn't give them, right, which is a transplant. I think the other way to look at it, though, is that, you know, if if I need a transplant and I have a willing donor and I go through a kidney exchange, you know, insurance pays for that. And I don't actually care whether it's Medicare that pays for it or private insurance or even if it were some individual out there that, you know, I just care that it gets paid for. And nothing different is happening here, right? I mean, it's still just a, a an insurer or healthcare system, or so far, um, private philanthropy has been paying for this. But the payments aren't any different in amount or in kind than what are currently received by patients, right, in in high income countries. And so, you know, I just think it depends on what our we consider our baseline to be, whether we think of that as quote compensation. But if our one of our biggest concerns with the um, transplantation tourism kind of thing is uh, is exploitation, yep. Th- then you know you you might have a concern that by paying for transplants in in poor countries, they're receiving something of a very high value relative yep. to other goods and services uh, in in their community. However, the mitigating factor here is that the most that a donor in a poor country can receive is kind of the good health of someone who, you know, is the good health of someone who presumably they care about, right? And that's, that's exactly right. And this whole system in a way like equalizes the value of life between high countries and low income countries, high income countries and low income countries, right? I mean, because that's all that's being right. preserved. That's right. Even though the money is like the same amount of money to people in a poor country is like way more valuable than um, than what they were in, in the same way that being paid for a transplant in a well, you, yeah you're about to say something well yeah let me ask let me ask this um, I, I should just point out that they're not getting any they're not ever receiving any money right the the money all goes goes into a trust fund that that is there to pay specifically that that's managed by you know healthcare professionals and that is there only to pay for medical expense, approved medical expenses. So it's not like we give them money and say, you know, only use this, by the way, for your your um, immune suppressants. It's sort of, that's not what's happening. It's much more carefully managed than that. It to is. To guarantee that those resources are being used for those medical purposes only. Exactly. And, and another way of looking at it is, is there, there, it's a carefully designed not to achieve any other exchange of social surplus. So, you know, exactly. the social surplus in the United States is you get to go off of dialysis and there are all kinds of savings. But um, those savings, but for the cost of the transplant and further therapy in the in the poorer country, all remain in the United States, for example. Right. So we I think we all understand <laughs> that um, in in a in a world of unbridled transplant tourism, uh, an objection a person might make to the existence of such a market might be that uh, there's a, a very worrying form of coercion whereby the persons in the impoverished countries uh, are forced to sell organs that they wouldn't sell if they hadn't by fortuity wound up in those impoverished countries and that one can imagine that as a sort of 
distributive concern. Right. Um, and might, might the same critique be made in the global kidney exchange context that while it is true that the uh, pair in the low-income country is, is better off in the way that you guys have been describing, and that seems to me to be undeniably true, um, m- might the critique nevertheless be, okay, but <laughs> they're in the low-income country by a mere fortuity. And in, in, so, so from the distributive point of view, uh, this does begin to smack of tourism in that sense, right? That we're, it is only because the world has these inequities that we can go to a place called a low-income country where there are people who will see this as a much better equilibrium for them, right? The post-transplant exchange equilibrium, um, and, that that, and that we're not really addressing that inequity that creates the opportunity. Let me, let me add to that critique just a little bit. What if the people that were helping in those low-income countries or the people who are part of this are chosen precisely because they match difficult-to-match people in the United States? And so among people who need kidneys in lower-income countries, it's only those who would be of service to people in the high-income countries who get these resources. Okay, so these are several different ob- objections, um, all of which have been put forward by sort of opponents of global kidney exchange, which are who are many, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should make that clear. Um, so let me address the coercion point first, because because I think that is a weaker objection to global kidney exchange in some ways than the other ones um, that you just raised. Here is the difference to me, and it depends on how we're defining coercion, but if we're going to define it differently than sort of the, the normal mechanism, then I think we, you know, then that, that has to be a longer conversation, Mm -hmm. right? But the normal, the normal thing that we worry about when we talk about coercion, right? When we talk about the coercion inherent in this, in transplant tourism, for example, uh, the concern is that somebody who has no interest in being an organ donor, right? Who, um, who would prefer, to earn money through some other mechanism, but has no other mechanism available, will essentially be forced to sell their kidney um, because they have no other options available. Now, some people are untroubled by that, but let's just assume for a moment that we are troubled by that, right? That, That we worry about that type of coercion. That type of coercion, I think, is not present in global kidney exchange. And the reason for that, right, is because what we're what the concern is there is that somebody is being induced to it to participate in a transaction because the, of the lure of money, right? This is not such a case. This is a case where nobody is being induced to be an organ donor. This is somebody who desperately wants to be an organ donor. Um, in the same way, uh, that anyone in the U.S. without a um, compatible who, who can't donate to their loved one, right, for for biological reasons, say, desperately wants to be an organ donor but can't be one, um, and that barrier is being removed. In one case, the barrier is financial, and in the other case, the barrier is immunological. Uh, but it is not coercion in the, in, the, in the sense of inducing somebody to do something. Nobody's being induced to do something. These are people who desperately want to do something um, and are, are being enabled. And I think that's and I think that's a critically significant difference. I mean, it, to me, that that is yeah. a that is an enormous uh, difference, and really does mean that the kind of coercion that we would see at the base of transplant tourism is is not is not present. Right. 
and at the same time, it seems to me that a difference between a, a an exchange, whether a swap or chain, with entirely within a single country and therefore within a single healthcare system, mm-hmm. um, that when it once you start to cross country boundaries in, and and in addition cross uh, you know country income uh, boundaries and therefore healthcare system boundaries, uh, you 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 are creating a situation where the very reason there is the potential for a mutually beneficial exchange, like that, that potential wouldn't be present were it not for these enormous differences in wealth. And, and it, to the extent that that's what makes transplant tourism or, or that it's part of what makes transplant tourism quite ethically worrying, it seems to me it's present in, in, in I, I global kidney exchange. I don't think that that's so. Because if, you don't if, think it's if, present be, in both. Because if, if they were not low income, right, if the countries had equal income, then they could just be absorbed into the system of chains, right? So the uh, global kidney exchange works exactly like a chain, but the problem is that the, that the in addition to participating in the chain, the transplant has to be financed. But but here, what uh, and 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 maybe Kim can help us out of this thicket. But it seems to me that the yes, they might be absorbed in the chain system of, as a formal matter. But if they were another wealthy country, they would have the same skewed distribution problem, right? Which is that the pool would be full of hard to match people, and so they really wouldn't be getting you the benefit. The benefit of the participation of the low income. Countries is that their pools of of donor uh, right. and need yeah. pairs are full of really good to match and that's people. A spe- that's what right? I was saying. That's but a, it's because they're poor, right? But that's a special distributional concern um, because of the way these things are financed and the preferences of the rich country. It's not so much a coercion claim. That's what I'm trying to get yeah. at. Is that coercion yeah. seems to me a not a very useful term for talking about this, right? But there's but there is a wealth disparity worry it seems to me that is that could be captured with some other term um yeah and and that you know and and look all of this is coming from a place i think this global kidney exchange is so damn clever and important and useful and good i am not making these points as someone who thinks this stuff shouldn't be happening i absolutely think it should be happening i'm trying to think through the ethical briar patch that i know we're standing in the middle of right yeah well one way to do it and and Kim, you can tell me, like, I'm just thinking out loud in response to these comments is like once you establish global kidney exchanges with a particular country, there should be some random probability of including people who need kidneys in those countries um, for um, among all the people in that, you know, everyone goes on a list and you sh- should randomly include them in chains, whether or not they are particularly useful. Um, to filling out a chain with hard to match people in, say, the United States. Yeah, so that's one. So that's one thing that has been proposed, right? We could argue over whether this particular type of of inequality, right, is one. I mean, th- so beneficial trade always comes about because different people have different things that they need, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, two different two different exchange systems have different things that they need. So, I mean, I I I could make arguments. Ag- you know, against why we should worry about this type of the inequality, but I'm not going to do that. And in, in the spirit of the paper, right? Part right. of part of the point is is that it, you know these are just constraints that you have to take, right? You take them and you figure out how to address them. And I think one way to address it would, in fact, be um, to expand 
rather than only include, you know, because you also identified another thing that bothers people, which is that, you know, it, this is not something that's open to everybody or open to a lottery system, right? You're choosing particular pairs and you're choosing them based on particular biological characteristics that are useful for the chain. Now, with, with the preface that that is not any different than the way in which we construct chains in the United States, but, but leaving that aside, right, I think that there are things that could be done um, to make global kidney exchange more palatable to at least some critics. Um, and one way to do that, I think, would be to spread the benefits in a more tangible and obvious way um, to non-GKE participants from those countries, right? Um, and one way to do that would be, you know, as you say, um, to include within the chains people who, you know, don't don't have any particular set of compatibilities that are use, you know, that that are particularly valuable, um, but that are drawn through some sort of lottery and that can be fit into the system, mm-hmm. right? Um, or through some other mechanism. Maybe lottery is is not the right way, right? But but um, through through some sort of uh, of other system. Yeah, or just include them all. You know, so the system is blind as to the country. Well, sure. Include them all. But that requires money. Right. Um, And so, you know, where's the money going to come from right now? This is there. You know, there's not like it would be one thing if sort of Medicare got on board um, and was saying, yeah, we're going to pay for these global kidney exchanges or insurance companies got on board, which I think that eventually some insurance companies will get on board. But right now, right, this is all being paid for through philanthropy. It's not a bottom. There's not a bottomless pit of money. You know, right now, you know, uh, sort of acceptance has to be built. But in order to do some of those things, there has to be a lot more money thrown at the problem. Recognizing that it's still ultimate savings, right, from our perspective. Right now, private philanthropy is paying and all of the benefits, all of the cost savings are accruing to insurance companies and Medicare who are not giving anything back to the system right now. Uh, and that's not obviously not sustainable on a long term basis. Exactly. It's, it's not sustainable and, it, and it's not scalable. And so if that changes, then some of these options, I think, would be would be open um, and and I think have to be explored because, again, the resistance to, you know, whatever we might whatever discussion we might have about the costs and benefits. These are these are real impediments. You know, people have these concerns. They need to be addressed. Global kidney exchange, I think. Um, will not get off the ground until they are addressed. Um, but some of them can only be addressed once it reaches a sufficient scale to, to do it. So, so one can envision, I just want to make sure I'm understanding it right. So one could envision that in a system where um, the, the, med- the medical funding um, that wasn't philanthropy, it was, this was mm-hmm. a going re- regular medically funded uh, uh, concern mm-hmm. that you, you might be able to estimate, for example, with a high degree of certainty that for every five preventable dialysis expense units, mm-hmm. um, y- you could throw off X dollars that could be sent to that low income country to fund uh, transplantation for people who are not participating in, in any of the chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and that are easy to match within those countries. Mm-hmm. Like you could take cash and send it to that other country to fund transplants there. That's right. Or to uh, or to improve the infrastructure associated with transplantation. I mean, ideally, right, what you would want to do is to 
have the benefits from um, a larger scale global kidney exchange be used to improve the transplantation infrastructure within those countries so that they can do their own global kidney exchange. Mm. And so that then if there's international cooperation, it's taking place on an on an equality basis. Right. That is the long term hope. I think, for global kidney exchange. And, you know, I believe some of that will happen anyway, right? I mean, once you start, you know, take, you know, so the the very first global kidney exchange was with the Philippines, um, where, um, you know, in that case, the, the, the recipient um, had maxed out on the amount of dialysis that he could receive under the public health care system. It was it was very limited. It was only a few months. Um, they may have expanded that now, but it's still fairly limited. Transplantation wouldn't be paid for at all. But now he's been transplanted uh, and is rece- receiving follow-up care um, in the Philippines, which has a lot of benefits that we, we haven't talked about. But again, they're more visible, you know, only if it's done on a larger scale. But you can see how now, right, but you've got money flowing into the healthcare system that goes to nephrologists and transplant surgeons and, um, you know, pharmacies to carry the transplant drugs. I mean, it can, it can have an effect on improving the system. But it's not out of the question that some, that, that you know, in order to um, at least in, in, increase the perception of, of fairness that more money would be funneled specifically t- towards those purposes. So, yeah. So let's talk about repugnance a little bit, because yeah. I, I think one of the criticisms and, and pushbacks that you got is that there's a certain kind, and this isn't necessarily you, but, um, uh, and they were careful in their responses to say, you know, I'm not sure what Kim thinks about this, but uh, right. there's a certain kind of economist attitude, which sees repugnance as an irrational attitude to be worked around with market design. In other words, market design is a is a solution to the problem of human ignorance and irrationality in the same way that the construction of like the altruistic story was a solution to the problem of, uh, you know, the, the great the great gift uh, story is a solution to the problem of this kind of irrational uh, fear of having part of your body transplanted into someone else's body. Right. And, and or right. They're seeing something like deeply wrong with that. Right. So, uh, I mean, this is like super interesting to me because like one of the one of the pushbacks is that you should take more seriously the um, why people feel a certain kind of revulsion. And and there may be multiple reasons for this. And unless we know what they are, it's hard to know whether these various other schemes, um, whether they're exchanges, chains or global exchanges are responsive to something, you know, either deep in our humanity or some particular concerns, which um, which are important and to dismiss them as like irrational objections to be worked around um, is to ignore a potential problem. I mean, do I have kind of is that one of the philosophical critiques? Do I have that about right? It's right. Although I think that it's misdirected. Of course, I know you disagree. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think that that is a fair critique of economics more generally um, and perhaps the initial work, you know, on these these contested transactions within economics. I don't think it is. I think that probably, um, you know, the 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 comment the commenters um, here would disagree. I don't think it's a fair critique of current work on repugnant transactions. And and the reason I say that is because it's not. It's not being dismissed as irrational. It's, it's just not even being questioned, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, this is the constraint, 
right? This, this causes uneasiness in a, in, a, in a large number of people. We may agree or disagree with that uneasiness, right? But that's irrelevant. It is a constraint that has to be worked with. And so in some ways, it's doing the opposite of treating it as an irrational preference. It's in fact saying, we are going to treat this with the utmost respect and power and say, okay, we, we take it that you object to this. Let's try it this way. Does this, does this answer your objections, right? Um, does kidney exchange answer the objections that you have about commodification, for example, or your uneasiness with kidney markets? It seems that the answer is yes in most countries. Apparently, the answer is not yes in Germany, right? Um, and so, I mean, I think that you, this debate has to be put into context a little bit. And Kieran Healy and I actually do that in a, a piece we um, uh, wrote for, for AER um, that, that was part of a, a panel on repugnance. Um, but, you know, the sort of the, the old debate tended to go like this. You know, economists would say, we need to have organ markets. That's, mm-hmm. that's the efficient way to proceed. And, you know, other people would say, you know, that's disgusting, that's immoral, that's commodifying, that's unsafe. I mean, any number of objections, right? And then the response from somebody like Gary Becker, who wrote on this, and, and quite frankly, the response from Cook and Kravik, who also <laughs> have, have written in this vein, is to say, but wait, look at my careful cost-benefit analysis showing, right, um, all of the gains that can come uh, from this and the way in which your objection about riskiness, for example, can be answered. And then the response is usually you're missing our objection. You know, this doesn't go to the heart. You know, it doesn't matter how many lives are saved by this. It doesn't matter how much money is saved by this. You're missing the point of our objections. Right. And so I think that one of the things that Al has tried to Al Roth has tried to do with his approach to market design is to come in and say, we're not going to have that argument. It's pointless. We're arguing past each other. Um, And instead, from the perspective of the market designer, what matters is that there are constraints on certain types of transactions. We need to understand what they are um, and we need to work with them. And the point isn't to dismiss them as being irrational or take advantage of people's irrationality, but to say, this is this is your I don't want to call it a feeling because people think that that diminishes the sort of intellectual heft of it. But to simply just say, I take that as a given. So, you know, we can't have kidney markets. We'll have kidney exchange. What is the best, most robust kidney exchange system we can have that doesn't run afoul of these types of concerns? So there's an expectation of a kind of convergence on on yes. how to proceed on this social problem, despite this is like an incompletely theorized agreement in a way, right? Well, but, you're probing the boundary of a scruple and you and you probe it by offering a series of pairwise comparisons. Yeah, it's like, yes. that's not okay to do. Is this okay to do? Okay, right. that's not okay either. All right, what about this other way to do it? So the sort of iteration sounds kind of important in figuring out whether there is a boundary of the objection that could that that right. yields in some ways where it might not yield in other ways. Although the you know the 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 wary may recognize a certain kind of philosophical argument here, and that is that a lot of human activities exist along a spectrum, and a lot of innovations will you know kind of asymptotically maybe approach an exchange market in the end. And so okay, so you don't object to the exchange. How about a chain? How about a global chain? How about a and pretty soon you have something which looks more and more like an impersonal market in kidneys. I mean, now I think 
that argument doesn't necessarily work. I think, you know, for some of the reasons we discussed, the global kidney exchange is like qualitatively different. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it's qualitatively different in a way that matters is exactly the kind of thing you're you're talking about, Kim. Like, you know, do you agree with this? Right. You can ask to people who normally object to markets. Um, right. But I think there's a benefit to pushing someone to if if ultimately the argument on the other side is a form of slippery slope argument. Right. It's good to find that out. I mean, it's good for it. it the, I think I think what I what I would resist is the notion that a person making an objection and we can it could be called repugnance. I call it a dinette set. I don't care what it's called it, in the sense that what I think a person can't do when they're making an objection well, they can do it, of course, but it's a it's a sort of conversation ender when they say, look, my objection is such that um, I insist not only that you not do the thing you want to do, I insist that um, you never try to find out if there's any alternative that I would accept. Let, let me do a, let me take a completely different example that pushes exactly on that intuition. So um, I, you know, I think one let's just take disgust for a second. I think for whatever reason. Um, you know, natural selection has has given us, I think, the following reaction. And I think it's kind of universal. I don't know. I don't know how cross-cultural it is. But um, we all have no problem swallowing the saliva, which is in our mouths, right? We do it all the time. We're right. constantly doing that, right? But if we were to, um, over time, fill up a glass with our own saliva, it would seem disgusting to drink it. Mm-hmm. Like, even if it's our own, I think, I right? Think that's I, right. And I don't know how cross-cultural that is. but it, um, Nor do I. It certainly seems disgusting to me. And um, <laughs> I think Martha Nussbaum actually used that example in her book. Oh, did she really? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a great book. And I think a lot of it has to tur- it turns on the internal external distinction. And there's something deep within us about these kind of internal external distinctions. And, you know, look for more on that for me in the future. But so, so if you have a parent who has a kid who's um, spitting and they discipline them for spitting and say, you know, you don't spit, keep your saliva in your mouth. Most, I think we don't have any problem with that, right? That's, that's what a parent should be doing. <laughs> Um, and a parent who's like dribbling spit out of their mouth, like maybe on a sibling or something like that. And they like suck that back up. I think most of it would say that's an okay corrective, right? You know, suck up the spit that you're starting to dribble out of your mouth or something mm-hmm. like that. And I don't know how disgusting this is getting, but that's kind of the, the point, right? Yeah. I'm wondering um, that myself. <laughs> um, a, a, a parent who's walked in on a kid who has just deposited a bunch of spit into a glass, who as a disciplinary measure says, you need to drink that entire glass. I think most of us would consider that abusive. Like I would consider that to be abuse. We could probably draw a spectrum between kind of sucking up the little spindle of spit that you're dropping onto your sibling to, you know, more and more spit. Like at some point it seems abusive. <laughs> you know, I, so so one part of this example is to try to ask, like in one sense, like the 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 idea that you don't drink your own spit if it's in large quantities is it's hard to is it rational what what does that even mean what does rationality even mean in that context like it's there's something within us which suggests that you know don't do that um and and triggers a disgust uh, reaction you know the the criticism of the parent is based on this thing that we can't exactly explain like why it's unpleasant but we just know that it is and that it's abusive mm-hmm. kind of for that reason. I don't, I'm just kind of playing with like a different scenario that t- kind of takes us out of the familiar, well, now familiar kidney exchange scenario to something that mm-hmm. people would intuitively recognize. And everyone would kind of agree is disgusting, mm-hmm. but we're not exactly sure why. Right. And then how do we how would we socially regulate in a situation in which we were asked to regulate socially? Right. So, I mean, I, so this does in some way also illustrate how disgust, I think, is just a subset of repugnance, right? Because 
Um, again, here we're talking about something that physically is revolting to us, right? And that's not all of how we're using repugnance here, although that would be included, right? That is repugnant, but there are other things that are repugnant. Um, and yeah, I think it also does a good job of sort of showing that all of these transactions are on a spectrum, right? I mean, so I think, you know, if I were to try to, again, distinguish sort of prior analyses of, of these types of, 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 this, of the spectrum um, from current analyses of the spectrum, right? The prior analysis of the spectrum would have been, I think, to say, look, what's wrong with you? You've just illustrated that we swallow our own spit all the time. Um, and that we some, although we don't like it, we suck up our own spit and we don't think that that's horrific. Um, and therefore drinking the glass of the spit, that's just irrational, right? I mean, that would be the prior way of proceeding. And there may be some truth to that or there may not, right? Um, I think the current way of proceeding would be to say, okay, where's the line here, right? Everybody swallows their own spit. We're all okay with that. We seem to be okay with sucking up our own spit, but not okay, at least in certain contexts, but not okay with drinking the glass of spit. That's the line, right? Um, so assuming that we live in a, you know, a, a world where there's um, some reason to have people suck up their spit, and I guess under your hypothetical, it's, it's parental discipline, right? Right. Um, then, then that's the line. We don't interrogate the line. We don't try to figure out, like, you know, well, is that the appropriate place for the line? We take that as the line and proceed. Um, now, I mean, you know, that's a stylized example because because most people who do this, in, including me, you know, we also have opinions on where the line should be. And we frequently write about those opinions. But, you know, the, the point of this the, the invocation of repugnance in this particular context is actually to be completely descriptive and to leave the normative aside for just a minute, right? Um, and to say, this is the line. We work with that line. How can we be most efficient within the constraints that are given to us? And, you know, as Roth says in, in other papers, this is just as real a constraint as technology constraints or monetary constraints. Um, and therefore, we have to to treat it in the same way, which is to just take it as a given. Well, so, so I guess one of my concerns is like being, you know, um, uh, without a concept or set of concepts about like what constitutes the line, um, it's, it's likely that, you know, so if you're an economist who is immersed in, you know, you've studied a lot of economics and you've studied uh, notions of efficiency and you've seen how markets work and how they fail, you might have a different notion of the line because of those formative experiences. And so, um, and without these concepts, how are you going to identify where the line, who says where the line is in new situations? So, so suppose everybody agrees that global kidney exchange, if carefully designed, falls on the correct side of the line. In other words, people who have um, um, anti-commodification objections to unbridled kidney markets don't have an objection to global kidney exchange. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what if uh, we design a new market which says that um, we will allow chains in the, uh, in the global kidney exchange to be kicked off by a non-directed donor in a poor country – who will be compensated and paid, so not, not a donor, I guess, but a, a mm -hmm. seller, if that person can be verified as having a high income, which would represent a high income in a rich country. Um, you know, how would we... So I think a lot of us would have different ideas of where the line should be. I, personally, I'm more in favor of, uh, 
of, of more robust markets and kidneys, right? Um, for example, as a, at a personal level, like now, why? Like, I, it's one of those questions. Like, you you start to defend it, and you start to defend particular cases, and and over time, you develop maybe a a, a greater understanding of the rule that you really have. Um, but in that case, I'm not sure that we can just say, well, there is a line, and then we just ask people to kind of line up, like, where are you on this? Because when we do that, I think we end up consulting elites, basically, right? We we do, although elites respond, right, to the cues that they're getting from various constituencies, um, you know, which, in, which include the general public, but, you know, of course, also include special interests who, you know, who do sometimes use these repugnance-type concerns to their own advantage. And I mean, I think we can point to some specific cases of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I just think that it's, it, there's sort of two different jobs here, right? One is the job, one is job as market designer, right? Which is to, to take the constraints as a given and, and work with them. And that's the usefulness of the term repugnance, I think. Um, you know, so you can see that, that, that um, Glenn and Vema, the two commentaries that are published with this, you know, both coming from, to this from a philosophical bent, I think share with Michael Sandel a sense that that is unsatisfying because it is it because the, because it's not normative, but it's not normative on purpose. Right. That doesn't mean that we don't have normative arguments outside of this particular context. Um, but I think that this 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 particular one is sort of, um, or this particular debate, right, is just directed at sort of how we can proceed um, with market design in the face of disagreement about, uh, you know, disagreement both within cultures and across country, cultures about what is the appropriate role of of markets and even what constitutes a market. So do you think it's a so do you think it's a little bit like if um, uh, the automobile comes on the scene? And it's dangerous and a lot of people are dying and you have a lot of people saying, you know, we don't think the automobile is worth it. We don't think it's we think that it is dangerous. It provides advantages to some people at the expense of others lives. And it's just a, not a good innovation. Now, those people may have a point, actually, in the long run. But uh, <laughs> um, but then but is there anything is there anything wrong with some people in the culture saying, you know what, I understand these concerns. I'm going to invent seatbelts and I'm going to like propose a kind of car which I think addresses many of these concerns. And, um, and, and that's kind of their job, their role in the culture. I've introduced this thing. And the, one of the pushbacks they get is you haven't responded to the disgust we have, uh, to, to the deep nature of the disgust about, um, about risks from automobiles, which of course will never be eliminated exactly. Right. And you say, yeah, well, that's not my job to kind of necessarily to have a, a, a well-built-out philosophical theory responding to everyone's possible concerns with the automobile. Rather, I've introduced something which may be, you know, uh, uh, which may be a, a point of social compromise, and it's valuable that people are thinking about these things. Is that right? I mean, that, that seems it's not a market design point, but it is a design point, right? Responsive to a social concern. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right, and and so it's it's it doesn't suggest that we don't continue to have the conversation right? About what is the appropriate role of the automobile and whether it leads to inequalities and all these other things, which are all fair game, right? Um, but it, it, it does suggest that you, you take the constraints as a given rather than arguing with them, right? You're worried about risk. Does this address your, how can we address that risk concern? Can it be, you know, you're worried about coercion. 
how can, you know, does this address that concern? You're worried about corruption. Now, does this address that concern? Um, and so rather than have, you know, these are all contested things that we could argue about. Personally, I'm not sympathetic to really any of those objections, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, but I think the point is to treat the, is to treat them seriously, given that other people, you know, we can continue to argue about them. But I think part of it was just a, an acknowledgement that we've made very little headway in terms of those arguments and that what we needed to do, right, instead of continuing to have those arguments was to just say, OK, let's just accept that exchanging money for a kidney is repugnant. And we're going to use the phrase repugnant because people have different objections. Right. And we're not going to go through and categorize them. We're not going to judge them. We're just going to accept them as a given and say, given that constraint, how can we do this? Yeah. Right. You know, how can we get more kidneys to people who need them? And it's what's interesting is that um, or and a, a, a thing here that to me is so interesting is that um, the sense in which there's this unbridgeable gap. Right. Because the the you're an interlocutor with you who who is making one of the repugnance objections may feel that, you know, what drives people on to try the next design, right? And if they think, ah, so so ultimately, um, you know, Kravik and Pals are showing themselves to be the, you know, the unbridled utilitarians that they are. Right. And rather than having the philosophical debate with me until we finally reach a mutually satisfactory conclusion of that philosophical debate, during which absolutely none of these things should occur, Right. <laughs> They're saying, wait a minute, I can get a few more of these good things to occur. Right. And and in doing and in doing that, you, your your normative position is becoming clear. It's becoming clear it, as, um, you know, what is the what's uh, it, 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 the, the preference is getting expressed. Right. You're, right. You, you by you by making more uh, kidney exchanges yeah, but, happen. Yeah. Uh, you are revealing your utilitarian preference as a frame for thinking through and working through these problems. But not even that necessarily, because I, I think j- proposing this, you know, it, it's it's maybe disclosing that whatever moral view you have of repugnancy and its impact on exchange and market design, this is consistent with it. And by proposing right. it, I am not I'm not representing that I have a kind of view from nowhere that takes no position on these things. And this is like morality is irrelevant. It's that, you know, I know people have diverse views on this and maybe we can have a moral debate about repugnancy, but we can also propose designs and then evaluate those separately. So this kind of a two track thing rather than, uh, rather than, well, I am, you know, I'm above that or I, well, in a way it's an infinite number of tracks because what you, what you're doing is you're finding out like uh, among the population of people who react with repugnance or revulsion of some kind, there are some people f- for whom that will be where they also end up after an enormous amount of reflection and conversation. But for others, it will be quickly abandoned in the face of information about that they weren't, they simply weren't aware of, right, about all of the potential good that could be gained by engaging in these various forms of exchange, which are not payment for organs. Right. The medium of exchange is, in fact, the transplanted organ itself in that in that other sense. So. So this way of differentially diagnosing where everyone is in the thought space of how to uh, how to approach this social policy question, um, that that very phenomenon is a thing to which the most opposed person will, of course, object because (laughs) while you're doing it, there are things happening that they don't that they think are wrong. 
There are more, there are th- kidneys getting exchanged. And when, we, when your objection is in, a, is in eradicably to that very thing, that, that any kidney should be exchanged for another kidney, all of this stuff is just bad stuff happening, right? I mean, I'm not one of these people, so it's hard for me to get in their head, but it seems to me that's, that's what they would think, isn't it? I don't know, because, I mean, you know, as I discussed in the article, there was initial resistance to kidney exchange. There is today very, it's almost on, it's, there's very little resistance to kidney exchange. I mean, Germany... It's not alone, but it is an but it is an outlier, right? Um, in both having the capacity to participate in kidney exchange, um, and in refusing to do so. Uh, and again, I don't say that to to say that you know the U.S. is better that there's something wrong with the German approach. I actually think that the German approach has a lot of consistency to recommend it. Um, you know, and, and so I'm I'm not dismissing it. Um, but there's, there's very little resistance to, to kidney exchange now. And there was initially, right. And so I guess one could say, well, you know, um, is that because our initial resistance was because we, we either didn't understand it or there's an initial resistance to the unfamiliar as there always should be. And with medical innovations, right, (laughs) we should proceed cautiously. Uh, And we've now overcome that. Or is it because, you know, Kravik and company with their utilitarian analysis have moved us one step closer down that slippery slope? Um, You know, I don't know the answer to that. I tend to think that the answer is the former, right? That this is a mechanism for figuring out what people's objection are, where they stand proceeding slowly, right? With the assumption that you'll event, you're eventually going to reach a, a stopping point where, um, you know, there will still be debates around the margins as there is now with global kidney exchange, right? right, right. Um, and I do not know. I, d- I don't know where we're going to come out on that, right? There's a lot of resistance to global kidney exchange, um, you know, some of some of which um, can be addressed and some of which I think falls more into, you know, the the sort of catch all category um, of things that are we're not going to be able to address. Right. And it, it, if those remain the objections, you 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 just can't do it. Um, so we'll see. Wow. Um so when are you and Alvin Roth going to solve law review oh. matching? Mark? <laughs> oh, don't even, don't even. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm trying to, I'm trying to finish up a paper now that I'm calling segregation of markets. Mm. That is, um, that, that is about this kind of stuff, you know, mm, okay. the, cool. the, the Walzer stuff and, and, you know, uh, um, and my own view of it and, and how different markets have different kinds of logics and, and, and value structures and, and when we separate them from one another. So there's a whole other lens on this problem that comes out of that. Oh, interesting. Um, that I would love oh, I'm to, looking forward to seeing I would, that. I would, you know, but I had, we'd, I just we'd be talking for idea. two hours about this. I just had a great idea. So, so we got we, we to stop. Though. We talked about um, a paper of mine, and it, we I think it was a much better conversation than it would otherwise have been because Mike Madison joined us as a guest to talk about my paper. Um, <laughs> do you see what he did there? You see what he did there? there. Joe just said you know, a conversation I, I about his see. paper was much better if we could kind of get someone else other than just me to talk about it with him. Right. And so that's I, although I recommended that. I have so, to say. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it was and it turned out great. Uh, yeah. And so I think we should have Kim join us to talk about your paper. Well, let's. Oh, that would be fun. Let's see. She just said it was interesting, and she wants to see it. Uh, let's see. Let's see if the paper's any good, and what Kim thinks of it first. Well, okay. I was not allowed to interpose objections of that sort when it came to mind. But well, that's because all your papers are good. Ugh. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we've got we've we've got a plan. 
uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that I interjected something as grubby and low stakes as law review matching markets into an otherwise very illuminating and very important conversation about matters of real deep personal importance to people. Life and so death. So apologies. And, yeah. <laughs> Apology accepted. <laughs> Apology accepted, but the law review matching market is in fact a mess. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, what else are you going to say? I mean, there's a lot to say, but that's a totally that's a totally separate episode. And, there's a uh, lot to say, yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to like for, this is what's not altruistic about what I'm about to say, uh, or, or or about my attitude toward this. Like one of the reasons I kind of want to hit stop now is because there are like enough little Skype artifacts that every little minute that the thing ticks by, I'm thinking, oh, that's a, additional editing time that I have to do. So I'm thinking in a in a somewhat non altruistic way of like you know what is the cost benefit to me of continuing this conversation, and it's very high because Cam is like amazing. Right. And, yeah. and this topic is awesome. Um, but then I'm thinking, how much time do I have between now and Sunday? To do... <laughs> See, so we are, you know, we are complicated creatures. And, and my repugnance these days is mainly uh, aimed at like Skype and various um, audio glitches. So. Mm. <laughs> and there I don't think we're likely to hear a good use of the word asymptotically again. So we can put that on the, you know, the cost side. Well, should we should we wind it up? I guess I it's had a bunch so, of other. It's so, it's so hard to hang up with Kim because I know that it's gonna just we just keep talking. More great things will happen. Yeah, and I had a bunch of other other questions here, and we mm. didn't really go through like all the, the the different notions of repugnance and which ones. And and you know, one of the r- respondents challenged Kim, like you really should say like what you think, you know. And we've been talking around that about why that's not right, her responsibility right. in introducing the market, right? But like you know, that that would be a fascinating conversation as well. So you know, we're right. just not going to have them all. Right. So right. Um, we'll, well have we're you not back in have four them all years, today. Cam. We can have them all. We can have <laughs> them all. At, <laughs> given that, given that we've already established the podcast will go on forever. Will last forever. <laughs> yeah, I think Joe everyone, said it well. Everyone Joe is compelled to give us whatever organs are needed for us to continue to have these conversations. <laughs> oh my so god! I feel comfortable <laughs> insisting on that. <laughs> it will be eventually be the bionic cybernetic podcast. Nice. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe it will improve with. Um, cybernetic implants of some kind. All right, now we're getting just getting silly. So I'm going to wind it up. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. This yeah, has really been this is fun. Really great. And, and also, like I said, really helpful to me for this paper that I'm working on. So I, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing and talking about your paper. Awesome. Okay, thanks. All right, I'm going to hit stop. <laughs> All right, bye.